0: And also, as I've developed as a business owner, I'm recognizing how important it is to deliver a predictable experience. How important, you know, for scaling, having systems nailed down to a T. You know, I'll hear a lot of music teachers, myself included, a long time ago thinking, oh, it's so subjective. Oh, we can't possibly, you know, repeat the same thing for every client. Good luck, because that's going to be a long journey of you always being responsible for delivering that service and never getting to a point of scale, right? So I think the more we can really simplify, the more we can find the commonalities of the people we're serving and really nail that down, the easier our life is going to be, the more creative resource and bandwidth we're going to have for those um, those things that we have to think about to grow the business.
1: Are you a music school owner looking to scale your program from just a handful of teachers to a highly profitable, well-organized, and mission-driven company? Well, I'm Nate Shaw, co-founder of the Brooklyn Music Factory.
2: And I'm Daniel Patterson, founder of Grow Your Music Studio, and we're here to help you discover a proven pathway to sustainable growth in your music school.
1: So get ready to take your passion for music education and scale it to a seven-figure
2: music school. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are going to be having a conversation with uh, Alyssa O'Toole, who owns Musician's Playground in Boston. And uh, we invited Alyssa on because of some unique perspectives that she has. And I'm not going to steal her thunder. We're going to let her talk about that in just a second. But I think this is going to be a very helpful episode, a very helpful conversation, given the two conversations that Nate and I just had in the last two episodes. In the last two episodes, Nate and I talked about retention. And Nate's push was the communication piece and the community piece. And my thought on that was uh, retention happens as the product gets more effective. And these are not opposing viewpoints. These are complementary viewpoints. But the inevitable question comes, we as founders and owners might do a great job at the communication piece. We might do a great job at making the product effective piece, but how do you train your teachers to do that for you, and so the reason we want to have a list on today is to have that conversation about teacher training, and also just to dig into her business and look at um, what has made her business so effective, and um, yeah, that's that's where we're going today. So, welcome, Alyssa. How are you doing?
0: Hi, Daniel. Hi, Nate. I'm excited. Thank you for having me.
2: Very cool. Yeah, thanks for being on, Alyssa. <laughs> so, Alyssa, let's uh, break the ice with just a uh, uh, maybe like some quick background on you. Can you tell us about Uh, you, um, the, the, the high level details just love to get to know you a little bit better.
0: Uh, sure. So, uh, yeah, my name's Alyssa and my studio's name is Musicians Playground. We operate out of downtown Boston. Uh, We're right in the center of the city. So it's exciting here. And uh, we have a 3,000 square... I keep saying we, but I have a team as well. And uh, we have a 3,000 beautiful square foot space where we have a lot of music learning and making. We also uh, offer team building events. And so we have some corporate partnerships and relationships. And we do creative space rentals. So we have a few different revenue streams at, at the business. Um, And I started Musicians Playground back in um, probably like toe in the water 2012, but then really started taking it seriously and treating it um, more as a a business in 2014. Um, And I'd say probably it wasn't until 2012. 17, 18, Where then I really started trading it as a business. So uh, it's funny how we evolve, and these things are our passion projects at first. We maybe start out as teachers, and I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate to this story. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're dealing with more things like a budget and uh, how to hire people and how to make sure uh, things don't blow up if you're not in the space. And so, you know, there's there's been a journey here, and I I'm excited to share some of those details today with everybody. Hmm.
2: Nate, thoughts? Do you want to jump in? You haven't haven't had a chance to talk yet.
1: Yeah, I know. I'm going to just go straight to one of your last comments. Um, First of all, congratulations. Your um, purpose around the Musician's Playground, I just love. Mm -hmm. I love how succinct you are with it. And would you mind if I actually just read it out loud? Yeah, sure. Is that okay for me to just go straight there? You have a button that says why Musician's Playground on your website. First of all, totally awesome that you have that. Why? Why come to us, right? Hmm. We are 100% for music hobbyists and believe that learning music is meant to be fun, social, and transformative. Any benefit we offer, any lesson we teach is in the spirit of these coming true for you. So I'm going to go back to a comment you made when you said, in 2014, I started treating it, quote, more as a business... I love that, Alyssa, because it feels very close to my heart, very similar to my my, uh, journey at Brooklyn Music Factory. Um, And 2014 was a pivotal, what I call an inflection point in my life, based on some of the people I met. Um, And so it's very clear to me that the fact that in the opening five words, you state precisely who it's for. Mm. We are 100% for music hobbyists. And the power of that to me, Alyssa, is you're stating precisely who it's not for. <laughs> it so courageous and, and wise and very um, much with a business mind set, um, rather than frankly a teaching or a hobbyist mindset. you know like
3: you know,
1: <laughs> My question for you right out of the gate, Alyssa, is what was the pivotal moment for you? Why start treating musicians playground like a mm-hmm. business? What happened in your
2: life? Love at that question. 40? Yeah.
0: Hmm. That's a great question. I don't think it was a decisive moment, Nate. It was more an evolution. And um, I always had aspirations from the beginning of you know my twenties. To I was you know out of out of school by twenty, so I, I graduated early. And I was kind of, you know, piecing a couple jobs together. I always loved teaching. I had a little, you know, a little neighborhood studio when I was in my teens. And that was my first real go at entrepreneurship. So, mm. uh, <laughs> and then, you know, okay. So that love was always there, right? That passion for teaching others and for, you know, putting a stage together for them to perform and feel their fullest potential. That was always something that felt like a soul mission for me. And music just happens to be my chosen medium, Right. Um, so I knew teaching was it, uh, but I always did have a vision and the vision was written down in on the life plan from the time I was 22. And I kid you not, I was actually just telling, uh, one of Daniel and I's, uh, coaching clients through, uh, uh, studio growth accelerator, you know, we were talking about the, the power of planning and the power of vision, right. And clarity around goals. And I had written these, these, um, life goals with a life coach I was working with at the time. I had lost them, you know, through a couple moves. And then I was unloading some boxes and I dusted off these papers and there was my my vision for Musicians Playground. And at this time, it was five years or something later. Hmm. And almost all of that had already come true. Wow. It was another like two years later where we'd finally like I'd look up in the current space we're in and all of the things I had written on that page were in effect. Uh, so it's really interesting because as much as I say, like, yes, I've evolved into capable or a learning business owner. Um, I think there was always a business intention from the start and my vision for how big I wanted this thing to be. uh, It was always there and I'm still working my tail off to make it happen and even bigger than we are currently. So... Mm -hmm. You know,
1: um, Alyssa, uh, just a closing (laughs) thought on that. I love how you cite your teenage studio and the entrepreneurial (laughs) nature because... One of my first entrepreneurial endeavors was opening up a neighborhood car wash with my friend, Sam Duvall, and we called it Cheval Car Wash. And then I also, my parents owned a little two-screen movie theater. So it was a repertory theater where I worked, I sold popcorn there at age 12, et cetera. But the point is, is that like these seeds are there. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) like it's not a, like you, 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 I think that we have to remind ourselves how powerful it is to look back And then if you're as fortunate as you were to uncover some writing from five years prior, we're not all (laughs) that fortunate to find it again. But, um, you know, we have to always honor those. We have to know that those seeds were planted early on and that hopefully if we're actually living our purpose in a way, we are watering that, we are fertilizing that and and we're arriving at a, a gorgeous space like yours here later in life and continuing to evolve. So anyways... Awesome.
0: I, have two, I have two questions for you, Nate, on that on that story. One, how did mm. you differentiate your car wash?
1: <laughs> how did I differentiate a car Well, first <laughs> of all, no, we were more like location, location, location. <laughs> that was successful. That's Our it. Car wash. Because my dad lived on like the busy Main Street and had one of the <laughs> driveways that, like that, you know. The um, U-shaped
2: driveway, yeah.
3: Yeah, so, so cars <laughs> would come and go. And the,
1: the one thing we did for marketing was paint a huge plywood sign <laughs> you know, we walked like 300 yards down the road.
3: <laughs> I, tell you,
0: man. I, love I love it. And I just want to comment, you know, what I discovered, there was a period of my life where I was going through kind of also uh, a, an internal conflict of, do I want to lean into performing and be a musician and, and you know, make, you know, film scoring my, my art. But then I started to recognize that came from a disconnect of me not seeing entrepreneurship as a create, a creative art. Being wow. a business owner is a is a form, is a modality of creativity. It's one of the most creative and highest expressions of being a business owner. So, um, so I think that with that little reframe, you know, I was all guns a blazing then by my mid twenties. Like I'm okay to have music as my hobby, and you know, walk the walk of the place I'm going to be creating, you know, for others in, in the area of Boston and beyond. So, hence why we are 100 percent for music hobbyists, and I can totally relate to that feeling.
2: So I think uh, just something I would add on there as an encouragement to people who might be listening. There was a study, I couldn't cite it, couldn't tell you they did this study that if you would simply write down your goals, if you would just write down your goals, write down a vision, put it in a drawer, never look at it again. You were more likely to, to achieve those goals than if you didn't because it and, and uh, the reason I think that works, and they go into this because you know, it sounds a little magical almost, is that the planning and the vision, the foresight that it takes to actually put pen to paper, even if you don't look at it daily or, or tape it on your mirror or whatever, still is going to push you in the right direction. So
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, the same things happened to me. So where um, maybe I wasn't as good at looking at goals I'd written down for myself for the year, and I get to the end of the year. I think we said this in the annual planning episode, Nate. Oh, wow. That happened. That happened. That happened. I even forgot that I'd said that that happened too. It's fascinating. Um, Alyssa, can I ask you a question a little bit about that, that creativity comment you made? I think one of the things that really stands out to me in terms of what you do and it's referenced there on your about page is this idea that you, um, the model of musicians playground. I, I what a unique name, but it isn't just a unique name. It actually has, it's vested with meaning, I think, because you have a model and the way you describe your business is different than most, almost all the music studios I own. And again, I don't want to steal your thunder. Could you go in a little bit about how you view the business? What is yeah. it in your mind? You know what I'm getting at, too.
0: Yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to say. We're a gym for musicians. So uh, basically, I, I come from also background of athletics. I used to be a CrossFit instructor back in my heyday. And I used to work out and wonder, why can't we learn and make music like this? You know, um, so I set out to create a place and a model that would resemble a gym, you know, you have a gym membership. Hopefully most of us do who are listening, or at least we're staying active. Uh, and you, you know, walk in, you have with a membership, the option to utilize the equipment and the space, right. To do your own thing. Um, you also might have the option to do some different group classes, maybe do some yoga or strength, you know? So for us, that looks like a band class, or that might look like, uh, some labs, or that might look like technique, uh, workshops, things like that. Um, and then you also have the option to take it to the next level and work one-on-one with an expert coach. So um, I really find that model to simplify our marketing and sales at the business too, because everyone can understand a gym. And also, you know, for those listening who are in that point of their evolution as business owners who are like, oh, people can modify me by the hour. I just want them to pay me a monthly rate, right? you know, by being a little bit more creative by with the way that you package things. Um, that value perception goes up. Right. Mm. And, uh, and so it's not, you know, it's not so much a pricing game as a value game once you move into a different kind of model. And if you take it away from the typical, which is, you know, you pay me for four lessons a month and that's it. So, um, so yeah, so we're a gym for musicians and I try to closely follow the athletic world, which I love so much.
2: Could could I ask about that creative, again, that creativity comment you just made there, because I think just in my travels, and I know in yours, there is a challenge, I think, that a lot of school owners face um, where they don't know how to come up with that creative core. Mm. Uh, the, you know, the challenge being, well, you know, we do just teach lessons. And I've even had people say, oh, you know what Nate said about Brooklyn Music Factory, how it's community-based and how The fact that he made music with his brothers growing up, that it inspired him to create Brooklyn Music Factory the way it did, you know, and then they'll hear you and they'll hear you say, I have this background in, uh, in athletics. And so I designed the school with that in mind. Like there's this really strong sense of mission and purpose and people hear that they get a little bit insecure and they say, "I, I don't have that. I took lessons, I went to college, I went out, I wanted to teach, that's it. I'm curious, do you have advice for someone who would struggle finding that creative core, that that mission? I know this is a tough question, but I'm curious if you have thoughts around that.
0: It's mm, a great one. And a lot of times, you know, coaching clients... I, again, I keep referencing studio graphics yeah. software because this is a common problem. Um, and I think a lot of it, a lot of the work that I'm doing with clients is around helping them find that clarity Um, Where I would start if I was in the shoes of someone who's really searching for that, what I call alignment, sense of like alignment with who we are and what we have to offer the world is really digging into what, if you're really super lost, like if they don't even know if teaching or music or running a studio is Mm. where they want to go, I would then look back at, you know, childhood. What did you do for hours and hours that Mm. parents couldn't pull you away to eat dinner for? And then let's go one step further. If you're like, yes, it was music. Yes, it was you know, uh, you know leading my friends and building a sandcastle. Okay, great. You're, you're an entrepreneur. You're a leader. You're an owner of a business. Cool. And maybe we marry those two mediums. Okay, now you're trying to find your creative edge within your business, your differentiators. So we need to step back. And if it's a so pro, we got to really think about, we are the differentiator. So we have to think about what are we going to, who are we going to be, one, and what are we going to do that's a bit different than every other place around us. And a lot of times that comes from the culmination of the passions we've had or the perspectives or the experiences we've uniquely had in our life. For me, it was athletics, for Nate, it might've been some other experience that really put a fire into, you know, his passion for community building, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we look in and we kind of look at the the bookmarks, if you will, of our lifeline. And you say, oh, this is interesting. This is interesting. You know, maybe someone looks back and thinks about how much they enjoy traveling around the world. And maybe then they build their studio around um, music, cultural music and, you know, music that maybe you, you wouldn't find in a typical studio like Musician's Playground. Right. Um, so these this is, a, you know, one very simple example. And, uh, everybody has a little bit of no pun intended soul searching to do though, to figure out how are they differentiating themselves and then what they're offering. And that's probably going to come from, uh, little, little signs in their life, if that makes sense.
2: Last question on this, would, would you vary that advice or would you, um, give different advice to, let's say a small the owner of a small to mid-sized school that maybe already has 120 students and they're struggling in different areas of their business and they're looking at all the opportunities they have maybe they have a couple of teachers working for them maybe they have a dozen teachers working for them would you give different advice if they're struggling to find what that differentiator is Oh, we teach six instruments we we teach kids to age 99 would you give yeah. any different advice to that person
0: I would yeah because at hmm. that point, at that point they they are operating as a business
3: Okay I think
0: there's there's a different a difference here. Like when you're a single person teacher and you're in the beginning stages of forming your studio and clarifying what you're actually going to be doing, probably the advice I just gave is much better. Mm. But if you are like a multi-teacher studio, if you are you know, further along in your evolution as a, as a studio mm. owner, I would probably then say, look to other business models that are successful. I, I often mm. will look around and say, okay, what... I will look at like, you know, stocks that are performing certain ways and companies that are being written about and business articles. And you kind of look at like Peloton. This is a huge idea for me when, when COVID hit. I thought about how awesome it would be to have a, a studio where we could stream on demand and have a hardware that connects to that. And so we could reach into a different market. Right. Mm. OK, this is a creative jump off. But what did I do there? I just I just looked at a pellet like another business in a different industry,
3: yeah.
0: connected that to music. And how do we. How do we make the model of what we're doing fit familiar models that customers are used to across other verticals? Does that make sense? Oh,
2: that's really good advice. Uh, yeah, totally. Nate, um, thoughts? Yes,
1: I want to go back um, because I want to go back to this um, comment you just made, Alyssa. Because I think Daniel's question is is so on point around um, people feeling insecure around their purpose. Right. Or just their why, like in our, uh, I can't remember what episode it was. Maybe Daniel does, but we did a, we did our five favorite books episode. It was episode 13. Why- yeah. There you see. Daniel's got it.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was a, a, you know, I talked about Simon Siddick's book, um, you know, start with why. And it's like, I want to go back to that piece of paper that you dusted off because there's something fascinating to me about your story um, you were a fitness a crossfit instructor. So that's like a, that's radical for a lot of listeners to think about. You know, you you're a you're a musician, you're a teacher, you've already got a studio as a teenager and then something happens and you become a crossfit instructor. So like clearly you're what are you doing to even make the bold courageous choice to become that? Cuz that takes a, I'm sure a whole bucket of training. Instructor, right?
0: Yeah, I think I was in a period of my life where I really wanted to test my limits and uh, and know my strength, and I I seriously literally, threatened. yeah, exactly, no pun intended. But actually, to that point, Nate, I really think that we just got to let let some steam off and allow ourselves to explore uh, because. You know, it's not all like we look at these businesses, right? Like I can, I can understand because I still do this with other businesses. I look at like, oh, how did they get there? How am I ever going to get there? You know, we have these yeah. moments where we're just looking at something else that's been created, and you're feeling completely defeated. Like, how did they? Ever, were they born with this like mystical clarity? And it's like, no, you know, you just get out, you explore, and you let yourself play in life. You know, you live up to what you're trying to offer other people in your experience of teaching them, and through that play and exploration, you're going to find, you know, signals or cues. And a lot of times, you know, I'm very much into emotional guidance. If I feel lit up in what I'm doing, like that's a sign that this is something that's important for me to pay attention to. So back to your question, it's like, yeah. CrossFit. I dabbled there for, you know, three, I actually then went into yoga after that and went really hard into yoga. So I've just been an, a lifelong player. Like I just, I like to play, I guess that sounds kind of weird, but a lifelong, a lifelong player <laughs> in life. Yeah. <laughs> Not in my romantic life. Right.
3: <laughs> 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 well,
2: hence musicians playground. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: You're a, I mean, yeah, so. so Alyssa, I want to marry these concepts that you're sharing. I, I love that idea. I mean, I, I, I feel like when you go through life following what energizes you, others around you say you're a dabbler. Others around you start questioning your motives. They say, you know, I heard this, I've heard this my entire career. I've Hmm. had multiple careers. I, I moved to New York as a jazz pianist and I, you know, toured the world. As a jazz musician. And then all of a sudden, uh, I want to well, and another time when we have time, we'll talk about film scoring. Cause I spent like seven years writing for Oprah and doing all the scoring right here in this basement studio. And then I would pivot to something else. And people would be like, Nate never really sticks with anything.
3: Hmm.
1: You know, and it, what's fascinating to me is like I never felt that way. I felt like I was your world traveler. I was just exploring the world. And if I was energized. Man, I was just going. I'm like, like you, you just went all in. I'm sure <laughs> you took like the 200 hour yoga training or the 500 hour <laughs> yoga training you went for it. You were like, I'm going to just dabble, you know? And so, but I want to marry this idea because I, I love that. I want to marry it with this. Um, so, the exploration of self is how we begin to develop confidence in our own creativity and our own idea that we have a very real purpose. And that it can take multiple forms. I'm sure you were transforming lives as a yoga instructor. I'm sure that sort of seed wasn't, it wasn't like, I just want to do yoga. I actually want someone to have a really transformative experience. Mm -hmm. Right. So how do you, so that, but then you did something to me that is just so um, wise and needs to be restated. You looked at an existing industry, the fitness industry, which of course, you already had some experiential knowledge in. And you said, you know what? I'm not going to make up everything in my business. I'm going to actually model some best practices on what I see around me, Mm -hmm. i.e. the membership model, i.e. You know, it's like um, we have a blink gyms right around the corner from me and they have a great, they're such a, they're totally like a hobbyist gym. (laughs) you know, they're like, come on in. Everybody, like, we'll take every shape. I can't remember what their tagline is, but it's like, anybody's welcome. Um, So tell me about how you continue to feel, here's my question. Sorry, it's a long way to get here, but (laughs) how you continue to feel confident in what makes you uniquely you while still adopting best practices from the fitness industry Right. So, in other words, you're clearly not like a cookie cutter at all in any way, shape, or form. Because Daniel and I see just a lot of music schools. You know, um, however, you're obviously modeling some best practices. What? How do you? How do you just work those two in your mind, and and stay confident with your direction?
0: Hmm. First of all. I, I gotta state for the record, I, I never became a yoga instructor.
3: Musicians
0: all my yoga friends though are gonna be like Alyssa was never an instructor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. Sorry, I was just rolling with your
1: story.
0: <laughs> I can't be caught out, you know. But I was I was a CrossFit instructor indeed. Um okay, so per your question, how do how does someone? Stay inspired by what is going well outside of them, but still stay true to who they are. In that process, is that right? Or yes.
1: I okay. I just because clearly, and this is going to get to the teacher training. This is like a circuitous route back yes. to the opening comment. <laughs> um, I,
0: I feel like I know it. I can see where we're, we're headed here. This is good. So um, I think again, we take inspiration from what's outside of us. And I, I equate it to a lot of listeners here probably can think about this in the form of composition. When we are composing a piece, we're fooling ourselves if we think that we created all of those little parts that make up our piece. Right. We chose the order. We chose the unique arrangements. We chose, you know, a bunch of things. But a lot of those things, if we really stop and look and step back, I'm sure if you stared at your piece long enough you could find each of the songs, the artists, the things that inspired you to create that, right? So if you look at... Building a business, it's no different. The composition is no different; it's just a different medium. We're looking outside of us. You know, I see Peloton, I see some of these other national brands that are way out of my leagues and where I would love to be someday. But I steal the best of those. I steal what inspires me. Again, that emotional guidance of this excites me, right? And then I take that and I ask myself, how does that? How does that work for me? And that's the key question we have to ask to take whatever we're given and say, how can this work for me? And then we throw out the rest, right? And then we build our beautiful composition called our business. Um, So, and it's an iterative thing. I don't think it's like, okay, you know, I like this idea of Peloton. So I'm going to, you know, take all of that and then make it happen tomorrow. I think we have to take steps and we have to stay consistent in taking those steps toward realizing that ultimate vision of, of, you know, that synergy of ideas. Is that making sense or...
1: Yes. I love, I love the analogy. And, um, yeah, we do, you know, we're a songwriting program at Brooklyn music factory. And so we're always, we're leveling. It's like 12 seasons of songwriting that our students go through and we're using common chord progressions. We're using common rhythmic motifs. We're using, we're developing melodic fluency over the course of 12 seasons and all of those are are based on best practices. And honestly, they're just based on Western music practices. You know, we're, we're, um, And so we're even confined in there. We're saying like, you know, European, American music, we're just like, that's going to be the journey that you're on and we're going to borrow those. Um, I want to highlight something again from your website. I'm coming back to it. Around this idea of what um, you talk uh, at length around emotional intelligence and you have this great gallery page on your site where you have, you know, your space is gorgeous. I mean, we're looking at it right now. It's just, just (laughs) can't wait to visit it. Um, And, Daniel talks often about this, and I really appreciate it when he says people will oftentimes look at that and be like, oh, if I just replicate Alyssa's space, that's the ticket to success. Well, I can tell you at the Brooklyn Music Factory, Alyssa, when you come visit, it doesn't look at all like your space. <laughs> you know, like it's it's more like a it's like there's it's just the color palettes radically different. Like the, you know, there's African drums everywhere. There's like the furniture is nowhere near as nice, et cetera. There's, there's like, you know, anyways, the point is, is that it's right on target in terms of our, what emotionally energizes us. And yet I'm certain if I walked into the musician's playground, I would be ready to play with you. I would just be like, Man, let's do it. What do I, let, let me go into your group room. I want to, can I hang out with those guys? Let me come over here. You know what I mean? It's like, so I just want to point that out around um, how key it is in every facet of our business that you do follow what energizes you. Now, we have limited precious few minutes together. So Daniel, I feel like we need to dive
2: deeper into this idea of how Alyssa actually. Yeah. Gets to before, we, yeah before we jump there, though, I want to just, I, I'm seeing... I'm seeing a theme emerge with some of the comments you just made there, Nate, because all of us had or have radically different school model, studio model. And I think what's emerging here is that no matter what the model, no matter what the creative core, there seems to be something that needs to be present. to make Brooklyn Music Factory work, to make the Piano Express work, to make musicians playground work. And that is, there is this greater vision that really drives someone forward. And as long as they're adherent, is there, as long as there is, (laughs) let me try this again. (laughs) As long as each person is adhering to proven business principles, like core fundamentals, you're going to make it work. The problem is, is that most people don't have that strong core. Um, And then there is confusion as to what those core principles are. And so, you know, the next time you get on social media and you say, oh, TikTok's the next emerging marketing channel. Oh, you see, you see, I see, I saw this for TikTok. I saw this for Snapchat. I saw this for Instagram. I saw this for podcasts. Oh, does our school need to start a insert technique here type mentality? Or they, so I think, I think you all see what I'm getting at there is that there are some core things that have to be done. Right. And when you get those, right. You have a tailwind. It it just becomes easier. Mm -hmm. And I think one of those core things to transition Nate, as you were mentioning a second ago is if you do have a team, how are you training that team? How are you communicating the values? Mm
3: -hmm. Um,
2: to a large group of people when you don't even have contact with all those people. So maybe let's jump into that team piece. This is such a large topic. I'm not even sure what question to ask first, Alyssa. So let me just ask you this, where do you think we should take this in terms of that team piece? how did this become an area of strength for you? How, um, uh, how did, how did you begin to develop what you did? Let's, let's just start this, very broad. And, and we'll, I think, narrow in on something as we go along.
0: Yeah, I think I'm going to kind of bring back 20 minutes ago when I said, mm-hmm. as pros, we are what differentiates ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to link that to something Nate said just a few minutes ago about space, which is, you know, yeah, would it be nice to have a beautiful space? Yes. But is that what made my business? No, what made my business were those differentiators of who I was uniquely as a teacher and who I, would, who I knew I would serve best and being clear on that and staying true to that delivery every single time. So now we go to teacher training and where teacher training came from uh, is that I knew I wanted this business to reach far beyond the number of people I could uniquely see. I also knew that I didn't want to ever have to teach if I didn't want to wake up and do it. And so like we play a chess game, we have to be a few steps ahead yes. and building this, you know, business beyond myself would require, I, I make that scary step of delegating and I am a perfectionist to you know, a degree. I hate to label myself like that, but I really care, you know, um, and I, I really like things done a certain way. And I'm sure a lot of people listening could resonate with that if they're a business owner. There's a reason we're business owners. We don't like to listen to other people very much, right? We like to have our way. So uh, so with that, then the question... And Daniel, we talk about in our coaching program, the power of generative questions, right? And the power of great questions. And the question for me that would lead me on like a five to seven-year journey was what makes a great coach and what makes a musician's playground coach. And so asking that, then I I really zeroed in on every moment I had to learn what was making or breaking a great lesson. And I started by looking at myself and listing those differentiators. You know, what am I doing that's really making this go well, making this person feel a certain way, giving them the musician's playground experience, right? And then I started looking outside of me. I would attend observations at the conservatory, New England conservatory that I was loosely a part of. I was, I was doing their education program. And then I also started interviewing just so I could not really hire some of these folks, but look at the things they were doing in comparison to what I would do and why. And what, what did that mean to me? What did that mean to the client? So what's really interesting as I picked up then through many iterations of this observation grid, I I kid you not, I have like a five-year evolution of the things I would start looking for. That turned into me meeting uh, Madison, who was a a really big part of our teacher training and and why it is the way it is today. And we partnered for a couple of years on this project together. We worked on nailing these concepts down. And then that turned into formal weekly two hour trainings that I put my staff through. And we go over every, like yesterday, we just had a meeting and our meeting was all about wordless teaching and how we talk a whole bunch and we don't need to. Mm, Yes.
2: Oh my
3: word. Yes.
0: So these are the kinds of principles we explore. You know, we explore definitely pedagogical considerations such as like scaffolding and some of these, you know, uh, experiential learning and Dewey, but, you know, we make, we really ground it and we make it, you know, why does this matter for our music hobbyists, for our avatars, right? So it really developed um, and developed so much that we actually have different programming approaches for the various avatars we see within our hobbyist world. You know, we have... A few avatars that my teachers will will lovingly refer to are, for example, the weekend warrior. Those are the people who show up; they don't tend, intend to practice at all, and they're just having a good old time in their lessons. So you got to treat them very differently than you would a serious hobbyist, who is another one of our avatars, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the one lesson wonder. That's the one who shows up, and you never know if they're going to come back again. So <laughs> what do you do with your <laughs> what do you do with your time with those people, right? So we we're open to all these kinds of avatars within. The the realm of hobbyists right and then my teachers have these programming models to follow to meet those people where they're at cool is that is that a long-winded answer to what you were (laughs) you were asking Daniel
1: (laughs) it's it's cool I only have five note
2: cards worth of questions (laughs) I I mean, it might be long-winded but boy does it sure resonate yeah oh my word uh where to begin on that I don't know about you, but I didn't get an owner's manual when I started my music school. And I wasted a lot of time on trial and error and making things up as I went along. But you don't have to do that. Nate and I are building a library of resources and tools exclusively for fans of this podcast. Go to growyourmusicstudio.com slash 7FMS and sign up to receive podcast updates, free resources, and even submit questions for us to answer on the podcast. That's growyourmusicstudio.com slash 7 FMS. And we look forward to answering your questions. So l- l- actually, let me begin here. I want to focus in on something you said there. You said it was a multi-year journey to make this. What kept you going through that? Why, why do this? Why was that so important to you?
0: Oh, a, I can't stand someone having a bad experience. And I knew if I was going to be entrusting clients with another person, I needed to do that uh, with, a, you know, consciously and, you know, with peace of mind that the person I was giving that client to, there's some sort of quality control there. And also, as I've developed as a business owner, I'm recognizing how important it is to deliver a predictable experience, how important, you know, for scaling, having systems nailed down to a T, you know, I'll hear a lot of music teachers and myself included a long time ago thinking, Oh, it's so subjective. Oh, we can't possibly, you know, repeat the same thing for every client good luck. Cause that's going to be a long journey of you always being responsible for delivering that service and never getting to a point of scale. Right? So I think the more we can really simplify, the more we can find the commonalities of the people we're serving and really nail that down, the easier our life is going to be the more creative resource and bandwidth we're going to have for those, um, those things that we have to think about to grow the business. Does that make sense?
2: Absolutely. So Alyssa, Then tell me what is the actual form? I mean, of of the train, is it a handbook? Is it videos? Is it live training with the teachers? I (laughs) think let's just give people a tangible idea of what what the teacher training is so they can kind of picture it.
0: I love it. So I would be a total imposter hypocrite if I taught with a handbook. Because if my teachers ever handed a handbook to their clients, I would roll on the floor. I would be so devastated.
2: (laughs) Wow.
3: Okay.
0: It's it's about walking the walk. You know, if I'm telling them, you better be wordless, as wordless as possible in your teaching, right? Just that example, pulling it back. I better not teach them that through words. That's really hypocritical. So the way that I have designed our teacher trainings and or like our weekly team meeting time, as we have roughly 15, maybe Up to 30 minutes, if we have some big events coming up, sometimes they can get a little logistically heavy, but I try to be super true to the like 15 to 30 minute mark of of logistics. The rest of our uh, one and a half hours is spent on pure development. We start with a demonstration. I always start with a a really bad demo and I ask them to, to tell me what are they noticing? What are they observing? Right. So we're pulling on different learning modalities here, but powerful ones. We only retain 5% of explanation. When someone's, like, when someone's listening to this podcast, they'll probably retain 5% of it and just the points that really stick out, right? Whereas if they were to go and try to teach this podcast to someone else, they're going to retain 90%, right? So, okay, so how do we pull that back to the train? So we start with a demonstration, we're doing some observation, a little discussion around that. These are all higher forms of retention and learning. Uh, then we move into teaching a bit of the principal, right? So let's say the principal's wordless teaching. I lead them through three different simulations or something like that. And then I have them partner off and practice with each other or sometimes we practice in big groups. Um, so they're actually learning and feeling really great at these meetings because they're actually you know, doing instruments that they wanted to learn with another colleague, right? So it's also building that sense of community and retention uh, amongst our teachers and our team, Right. Um, and then we'll often close with, you know, my favorite, what were your takeaways? You know, can we, and they have a journal, a teaching journal that they track all of their big takeaways in. Um, so this changes based on the different principles. And as I said, you know, principles are, they can span across a year, right? And sometimes I'll do units or depending on what we're, we're moving through or where I'm seeing is needed, I'll pull a concept up and we'll do um, some training around that. But um, but I try to make Daniel to answer your question and to really ground this, I try to make these as experiential as possible. Because if I'm just talking at them like I tell them not to do with their clients, they're never gonna learn, you know?
2: So listen, let me make sure that I'm hearing this correctly. Because I mean, I loved your your strong response there about it would be hypocritical to do one thing and say, but there and do another. It sounds like what you're saying is that. This is less of a manual and it's more of a verbal transmission of these values in your teacher training um, that's primarily communicated in a meeting. Is is that what you're saying? Or, or am I am I missing your point?
0: So the concepts are written, right? Okay. I have the concepts collected um, and written okay. down but I don't just hand that to teachers and say, read and understand, or I don't just explain that to teachers and say, listen to me and understand.
2: Okay, so that's a little more nuanced, I think, than how I heard what you were saying there, because what I felt like you were saying is this is merely an oral tradition. And I kind of tell them, (laughs)
3: because,
2: you know, I'm the systems guy and I just can't imagine creating the experience that you say, you, you know, uh, that you that you're saying there that uh, you're creating, you know, if you want to have a predictable business where you are uh, making sure that the outcome, the product, is fairly standard, I, I can't imagine that happening without written down systems. So, do you actually have, uh, um, you know, a handbook? Let's say the teacher's handbook that you operate from, where there's a specific order in which you. Communicate these values to the teacher. Can you give me a little bit more insight around that? Because I know I've got to be way off the mark, so I'm I'm really just inviting you to to give me a little bit more depth on on the, on what it actually looks like in the process, perhaps.
0: Sure. Yeah. And you know, so this is turning into my goal would be to turn this into an online course, and in two mm. fashions, by the way, one where we open it up, uh, one that's like tailor-made to Musicians Playground in our experience, right? But also kind of a white label version of it where Mm. I would studio owners who are listening right now could utilize it to to come up with their own teacher training and not spend five years like I did or seven years doing that. Uh, But per your question, what's the form of it? Um, So right now, it's very simple. You know, it's written. These are themes or concepts that are written in a word document and um, that some of them have been turned into scripts and then later turned into videos, right. We've gotten further with, with some of those um, in the creation process, but uh, really all I needed was just a word document um, and kind of, we have a table of contents, right. And all of of the concepts and themes and the various units that they apply to Um, some are higher level teaching strategies or tools. um, Whereas, you know, they would be effective for, for lessons for kids, adults, and group classes. Whereas there's um, others that are specific to the way we handle uh, specific kinds of lessons or classes, you know, or specific types of clients, right? Um, So it's a culmination of a bunch of different skills, strategies, tools, and they're really just meant to prepare our teachers for giving the most impactful experience possible when they're working with their clients.
2: How long from when you hire a teacher uh, would you expect it to take to put them through this teacher training process to where you get them to a place where you say, okay, they're meeting the minimum threshold of my expectation. And maybe that's a bad way. Maybe you could even reframe my question if you don't like the way it's framed. But how long does that take, do you think?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think it can depend on how much how many clients the teacher is actually practicing with. Like, let's say I have a a teacher that has like two students, right? Their learning curve is going to be a lot flatter than someone who gets thrown a three-year-old, you know, a 20-year-old, a 70-year-old is doing a group class off the bat. Uh, You know, there's bound to be a lot more learning happening by that person than there is the other person. So I'd say that's the first consideration um, if we were to hold those things equal and just say, like, okay, both teachers have, you know, 15 students or something and they're just starting out an equal playing field, then I'd say, you know, probably both would learn within a period of like three to six months. It does feel like a long okay. time, but um, I do think that we don't just, you know, we don't just wake up and play the piano. We have to practice some of these principles. And it takes time for them to really become a part of our conscious operating, right? And unconscious mm. operating. Um, so yeah, so I, I would say that, you know, there's enough concepts to go around for a year, but the critical ones, the ones that really make or break the experience for the clients probably could take up to three or six months for people to become totally comfortable with.
2: Wow. Okay. So what I want to point out is once again, this comes back to purpose because you actually have a vision for what that, what skills, tools that that teacher needs to have Mm -hmm. and you don't create an assembly line of teachers that can then create an assembly line of students without having that strong vision. And and just the way that resonates with me is that this is really, and we're going to use this word in the best way possible. That's really an an, an indoctrination process. And we do that at Grow. I did that at the Piano Express summer camp. We would bring in college students that hadn't even completed their degree yet. And we had to show them how to get a really good outcome when we were teaching 24 kids at a time. To learn the piano in one week, and um, we probably not, well, I'm going to just say not as robust as yours, <laughs> um, but we were able to help them unlearn things that they probably observed in their piano lessons, just like we all did, and then help them learn the ways that they needed to interact with the children, the ways that they needed to teach to produce the outcome that we wanted by the end of that really intense week for those eight-year-olds or nine-year-olds or seven-year-olds or whatever they were. So I'm totally getting that, but here's, what's interesting. You said some, I want to connect a couple points here that you made. You said that you were wanting to white label this as something that another studio could take and deploy for their own teachers. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is that as we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, that's not necessarily your vision for uh, the students of your school, isn't the vision for everyone else's school. So there has to be something, connective tissue.
3: You're,
2: yeah, you're producing a teacher to inculcate the values that you have into them, but there's got to be a deeper principle at work. Mm-hmm. that would allow you to be able to say, hey, here's the process and, and you can borrow against that process, but they're, they're they're not trying to produce the same outcome in their teachers as yours. So what's the thing that's underneath it that's mm-hmm. driving the change? Like what is it that you would actually license to them or teach them how to do? Do you see what I'm getting at here? I don't feel like I'm doing a good job of the question.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's really... The process I went through, through the five to seven years of, and all of the questions I had to be asking myself, the things I had to focus on, the things after years and years of refining, 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 and kind of simplifying, I found to be the heart of my teacher training. Um, Taking just that as the framework and leading them through those questions, having them complete the work so it is true to them and their values, but it doesn't have to take them, you know, seven years of exploration and trial and error. Um, is how i plan on trying to white label it interesting and, yep so it, it really is you know we have to get these teachers who are looking to scale to ask themselves certain questions and to become aware of certain things that are, are really critical for the the delivery for of the service that they're providing and also we it, it is a little bit unique to each studio and that the starting place might differ depending on goals and so um, so having kind of this You know, white label system, if you will, will help them to start in the right place, help them to ask themselves the right questions, and help them to become conscious of what actually is the differentiator and the ways that they're doing things that they're doing.
2: Hmm. So, understanding that that isn't yet an option for someone to do, (laughs) what could someone do in the meantime? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I can think of school owners right now that are struggling with the team piece. You know, we all have the thing that, is the, the next action we need to take in our business. But for those where they're struggling with the team piece, um, what would be a good action for them using a principle, a deep principle that you have really mastered, I guess, Mm -hmm. for them to improve their teacher training process or improve the output of their teachers? Like what's a piece of advice you could give to them as, as they start to take that seriously And start to move to correct that problem in their school.
0: Hmm. Great. Yeah, this is a good, I feel like I could just talk for 20 minutes on this piece alone. (laughs) That's
2: awesome. We'll make it a second episode. I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So my first question, uh, or and or points of exploration with someone, if I was working with them in in a coaching scenario, it's funny because actually I I just went through this with an SGA client, but, uh, We, I would be looking at their hiring process because it's really you know we want to look at hiring and training and developing and just team in general as another kind of sales funnel.
2: Yes, Nate says this too. Uh, I completely agree.
0: And it's like, a, are you attracting? the right type of person. Well, you can't know, or you, well, you know, because retention's maybe not good or like you're struggling with synergy or culture, right? You probably have a sense, "Mm, my hiring is a little weak or I could improve here. So if that's the case, what I would recommend for a school owner who's listening to this would be to really nail down your avatar of your team member and think about who is, what are their qualities, What are their values? What are their what's their personality? I mean, personality is a little tricky because we often will write down who, you know, our own personality and we think that's the best. But really, I've seen many personalities work. It's just Uh, Writing down, you know, what are some of those minimum viable standards or qualities that you need in the person that you're hiring? What are some of the red flags that you might see? What are some of the green flags you might see? Right. And really get clear because I find a lot of times when I'm working with a studio owner who's struggling with retention or, or culture in their team, a lot of times the issue is actually in the job description. They're not clear enough in who they're attracting. They're not giving enough there to detract. The wrong people. Right. So, um, so I would look there closely and just ask themselves to create a list of minimum viable quality standards, get really clear. The next step is looking at, you know, in the funnel, if you will, if I'm investigating how this is going for a school or for an owner is to look at how are they interviewing? Are they using behavioral interviewing? Are they using questions? And like, what is their funnel, if you will, for the high, for the interviewing process? Um, I have found, again, that went through many iterations with Musicians Playground. There was like, you know, in the beginning, I was like Googling how to interview people. And it was like, ask them these 10 questions. And that was like the beginning. And it it had absolutely no bearing on then the performance I would see from these teachers teaching. So then we ask ourselves, how can I be better at seeing what I need to see faster? And that's how you will, you know, hopefully refine your your, uh, interviewing process. So after, yeah. Okay.
2: Is, is there a, uh, a trait that you would call out that irrespective of the school, irrespective of the culture, irrespective of the, um, whether they're teaching a child or an adult, is there something that you would say people should look for in a, a teacher that you'd hire for the team? Or is it just too varied?
0: I mean, obviously, I think that we all can agree, who are listening here, like there's basic <laughs> levels of communication and professionalism and uh, commitment that we're kind of gauging, and kind of just these basic skills that across verticals are going to matter, no matter whether they're working for you know a tech firm or a music studio. Mm-hmm. I would say, though, that beyond those just very basic and expected skills, that it can vary for a business owner. Um, Okay. You know, it can can vary. Like, for example, I'm for a school for music hobbyists. So the kind of teacher I'm looking for is very specific. It's different than uh, maybe a studio up the street who is teaching people to become concert pianists. Um, their hire is going to have a very different set of experiences, background, quality, skills, and personality traits, right? So mm-hmm. I, I think that those lists can really vary. And it comes back to what you, Nate, and I have talked about, which is getting clear on who we're for and who we're not for. Yeah. And once you know your why, once you know who you are for, then hiring gets a lot clearer. Everything kind of settles down a bit, right? It becomes more simple.
2: This, uh, this is why I annoy coaching clients of mine so much because they come in and I ask them, Hey, get really, really clear on what you want to create. And they send me a document. I'm like, this isn't nearly clear enough. And, and they're, they're, well, what do you mean? And I just start, okay, have a fair, I'm going to be fair to myself here. I I don't know if I rip it apart, but I'm just like, well, this and this, and have you consider? and, and they'll, okay, let me, let me redo this. They send me something back. Hmm this feels a little indistinct. And then what happens is over the course of months, as we actually get into the work and and starting to create the vision that they've said, this is what I want later. And it's almost always happened. Daniel, now I see what you're getting at. Now I see why you, you, you bug me so much. I got annoyed with you at the beginning when you bug me so much about getting clear in the vision, you know, everybody says, Oh, I don't need a mindset training. I don't, I, I this vision stuff, I, you know, we just need to make more money. And it's like, no, you have to have a very clear everything flows from it. Yeah. And so I, I completely agree with you there. Now I interrupted your flow to ask you that question. I'm curious. Can you get back to that?
0: Yeah, no, I, I completely, completely agree. But I think just for anyone listening, that's the value of coaching and that's, mm. it can feel frustrating. Absolutely. Cause Real progress can be slow sometimes, um, but it has to happen. You know, you and I talk about this all the time. Part of our evolution is just simply becoming more clear. And a coach can really help that clarification process to happen much faster, right? Um, So just you being with your your clients and saying, this isn't clear, tell me more about what you mean, you're forcing them to dig deeper and to really discover that clarity, which I think is so invaluable. And part of the reason I've been so clear myself is all the coaches that I have worked with, right?
2: So, if did we just give away the secret? Do we just have to tell people, oh, you need to be more clear now they don't need a coach? Like, w- what does the coach do in that process, in your opinion? I mean, I have an opinion, but I'd rather hear yours.
0: Yeah. I mean, the coach is going to be someone like a guide who maybe is many more steps ahead, who mm. probably has direct experience and can, you know, understand what this person is going through and can ask them the right questions, can be a mirror, if you will, an objective mirror. To shine back, actually, what's going on both inside and externally for this owner, right? So to me, a great coach is someone who can ask phenomenal questions and can hold a neutral position so that you can really understand the ways you're thinking, behaving, acting, and how that's impacting you in relationship to your goals, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I would say the classic example of that is, and maybe I kind of referenced, I have an answer that. I want to hear yours. I love that answer. My answer would be a very practical example of, you know, if all you need to know is, oh, well, I'm going to hire a coach and they're just going to tell me to get more clear. Well, then I'll just get more clear myself. The problem <laughs> is, is that we don't know what we don't know. And often we get more clear on the thing we're already thinking, but that's probably why we've created the reality that we've created. the The perfect example of this is the very first session I had with the coach that I used for about four years. Mm -hmm. And I was so certain that the reason I wasn't getting to my business goals was I just wasn't productive enough. Oh, I'm just so certain. And I get on the call and I start telling him all the things I'm thinking. And after about 45 minutes, he's asked me a bunch of questions. He's like, Daniel, I'm going to be honest with you. I've worked with CEOs of multi-million dollar businesses I don't know if I've met someone more obsessed about organization and productivity as you. I don't think productivity is your problem, but I was absolutely certain that the reason I wasn't getting my goals was I just needed to eke out a little bit more efficiency, a little bit more. Of course I had a hammer. Everything looked like a nail and the hammer was productivity and efficiency. And he started opening my eyes to things that I didn't realize about myself, the help that was, I was getting in my own way. (laughs) And and um I mean I hired him instantly. <laughs> like he, you know, I don't know how we got into coaching in the last five minutes. Can we go back to the teacher training part? <laughs> like that was really interesting, but um
3: uh,
2: where, where were we on the teacher training
3: stuff?
0: <laughs> yeah, you can tell we're we're just super hyped about coaching. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. So okay, so um, so with teacher training, I think we had left off with there that you know hiring and and having the art of if you will team and culture and hiring yes. is is a, like a sales funnel right, right? and so right. i was going through my my kind of process that i would use with people i'm working with First step, just as as a reminder, is I would look at, you know, what is their job at? Is that really doing? Is it clear enough? Is it doing a good job at attracting the right person and detracting the wrong one? And then the second stage is how are you interviewing these people? Is it really efficient? Is it giving you what you need to know to absolutely know that if you needed to put that person on the floor tomorrow, that you would have enough data on them to trust that that would be okay, right? And then the third and final step is, of course, the ongoing uh, training and development, and making sure that uh, we're looking at what are, and that's where my, you know, what I'm hoping to give to studio owners in the coming years would be, is this process for here. You know, these are all these golden principles that make the studio what it is, make me and my start what what it's been, and uh, and I need, you know, to to translate these values to you. So your life and your job is much easier and more joyful, right? And together we see better results and that's the training and development aspect of it. Um, also, you know, leadership skills, making sure that someone is, is invested in becoming a better manager and leader. And there are very specific traits to that, um, that, you know, are worth that person's ongoing training and development for themselves too.
3: Mm.
2: Wow. Yeah, that third point right there is where I'd kind of cut you off about 10 minutes ago because I had that question about um, how other schools might apply this, even if they don't have the same overall mission, you know, the hobbyist, we're going after the hobbyist type thing. So that's really helpful. Uh, maybe we close with one last question here, but before I get to that, I'm curious, is there anything that you wish I would have asked you? There's something there's like something burning that that you really want to share about the teacher training, um, you know, musicians playground, musicians playgrounds mission. Um, anything that I neglected to ask that you really feel like a, a, it would be helpful to people.
0: Uh, no, I th- I think for anyone listening though who feels a little intimidated by all of this, who's maybe like, oh God, I I just don't want to get into it. You know, the reality is, you don't need absolutely need a year-long teacher training program before Mm -hmm. you hire. Uh, You also don't really even need to have more than, you know, five points distilled before you make your first hire because we learn by practice and experience. And I think that it's better to take the action than to not do it at all. So, you know, take the action and then let that breed the need to get clear on what your own principles for your studio are, right, mm. and continue moving, you know, moving the needle for your business and for your growth as an owner, um, mm. and then to, of course, accelerate that. You can do things like what we're talking about, you know, you can ask questions and really get clear and work with somebody who has more experience in that realm um, to expedite things. But you know, it's not necessary. I, I don't want people listening to this to shy away from growth goals because they think that they won't have what it takes to actually delineate a training for their school.
2: Mm, Okay. I think there's some really good... There's a lot of good advice in there. But one thing I'd really point out is that this can all be overwhelming. If you take the totality of all the advice given, even in just this podcast, but if you take into totality the advice coming out of our industry as a whole right now, all the different resources you can avail yourself, it can feel... If one listens in the wrong way, it can feel like a crushing weight. Like, oh, I've got to do this, i got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. I think what you said there is really helpful to remember that yes, y- even you started with Googling, well, what are the 10 questions I should ask when I interview? And I promise you that just doing that probably made it better for you, but you realized in that piece, um, you realized in that like, oh, this, this is getting me started, but this isn't it, this isn't where I stop. We don't just coast on on this Google search for the rest of the career. And I just think you've taken it to a, a level that most studios don't get it to. And they may not, you know, maybe only one in 100 studios ever go as far as you have in terms of that teacher training. Um, but for those that, again, for those that they're wanting to take the first step, uh, maybe we end on this question and that would be what would be the number one resource, tool, book, YouTube, what would be something that you could recommend like that if they're wanting to get, you know, just 1% better every day, what's that next 1% that you would point them towards and say, yeah, if if you're, if you're wanting to take um, predictability and outcome, culture, hiring practices, team training practices, what, what's a resource that perhaps that was really influential on you that you look back and you're like, oh, number one, that was hugely influential on me that maybe we could recommend to someone right now?
0: It's honestly the courage to take action.
3: Hmm. Interesting.
0: Yes, books can help. But at the end of the day, if we're just sitting back and reading about what we're trying to accomplish... It's not as powerful as a single moment of decisive courage to take action and try. And I would rather say to anyone listening today to take one tangible step. Maybe that's actually putting an ad on Craigslist or Indeed or ZipRecruiter for a teaching position or assistant position or... And and allow it to unfold and see how it goes. And I Mm -hmm. know that seems haphazard to say and maybe uncalculated and maybe a little thoughtless or unsupportive to say to people listening, but a book's not going to do it for us. A book will do it after we have the experiential understanding of what it's like. Mm Um, yeah. so we've got we've got to line up our ducks, we've got to practice, and then we've got to to be better and improve through then reading certain books through then maybe taking uh the option of working with a coach or you know there's many things we can do, but I'd say the first step is honestly having the courage and just hmm. try
2: interesting, and I think that unless you correct me here, I think that applies irrespective of if you haven't made your first hire or if you've got ten people working for you already. Mm. yeah
0: yeah and if you if you already someone listening already has 10 you know teachers or probably more than that right we're, we're talking about larger studios here i would say you know even me i can resonate in in the fear for example um, i'm struggling to figure out how to salary my teachers and to give them benefits and kind of uh, elevate if you will um, who we already are employing and how we employ them and then also um, I, for whatever reason, I I've been thinking about strategy and, and who do I need to employ on the, on the management side to really m- move my business forward to the next level. Mm. And I, I'm, you know, of course, hiring teachers has been a breeze. I can do with my eyes, my eyes closed by this point. Um, but you know, this, this aspect of, Ooh, building a managerial team and finding a partner and, you know, figuring out how to take this to a level I haven't been, that's where, you know, I'm struggling to then take that moment of, okay, what's the courage I'm needing? Yes. It's that decisiveness of this is going to happen. This is who I'm going for. And then it's the work around figuring out how to do that. You know, do I want to put an ad certain places? Do I want to talk with certain HR folks? Do I want to, you know, there's a whole host of questions that we have to ask ourselves, but I think even big studio owners could take a step back and ask themselves and what, in what areas could they grow their team that would move the needle for their business even further
1: and then take the action. Let's do it. Hey, it's Nate again. You know, every year at Brooklyn Music Factory, we get dozens and dozens of great reviews from our families. And you want to know how? Because we ask them. And they're happy to leave a review because of the positive impact that we've made on them. And so now I have a simple ask for you. If this podcast, the 7FMS podcast, was helpful to you, would you mind leaving a review for Daniel and I? And please, share the podcast with another music school owner that you think might benefit. It's one of the best ways that you can support us. We appreciate it.